Welcome to the Outerverse podcast, where we have discussions with creators and entrepreneurs who are leveraging the blockchain to get more people outside, exploring and pursuing a healthy lifestyle. I'm Robin Thurston. I'm the founder and CEO of Outside Interactive. I'm a dad, a lifelong cyclist, a skier, and I believe that Web3 technology will transform how we inspire and enable people to get outdoors. And I'm joined today by my co-host, uh, Dehani Jones. What's going on, Robin? And uh, it's great to be here. You know, Dehani Jones, former NFL player, action sport enthusiast, an investor, and an outside board member. Today, we're talking with David Taus. David is an executive director at Big City Mountaineers, a national nonprofit organization based in Golden, Colorado, one of my favorite places, that provides transformative outdoor experiences to kids in underserved communities. Welcome, David. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. And I, and I, I'd be, I make sure I have to say that Big City Mountaineers, you know, you guys provide this, this amazing, you know, opportunity for, for young people, as, as Robin pointed out. So welcome, David. I'm so excited to talk to you because, you know, as, as a, as a young kid, I, I love the outdoors and, and the fact that you work with young people and are able to bring them to the spaces where they so desire to be is phenomenal. Well, thank you. I think so too. <laughs> Um, as our listeners know, our primary goal at Outside is to get more people involved in the outdoors, and that is exactly the same goal of Big City Mountaineers. So uh, again, as Dahani said, we're super excited David's here. But before we get into Big City, Big City Mountaineers, um, we'd love to hear more about your lifelong experience with the outdoors and how it shaped your life, David. Absolutely. Um, I started my journey at a YMCA summer camp in Wisconsin, where I grew up. Um, it was a really transformative experience for me to spend all day, every day outside and, and living in a small one-room cabin with people that I didn't grow up around. And I kind of got uh, an experience that uh, a lot of my friends didn't uh, outside of my, my normal spheres and bubbles. Um, and what I found is that not only is it important to be outside, but the outdoors is really a catalyst for connection um, with myself, understanding myself better, understanding my community and the people I'm with better. Um, and, you know, it really had a profound impact on me. So from that starting point, I um, really pursued the outdoors in a, in a much deeper and more meaningful way. Um, throughout the rest of my career, I uh, was a teacher and I founded the Outdoor Club at my school. Um, I took trips out with the Appalachian Mountain Club when I taught in Boston. Um, <clears throat> I was a naturalist and environmental educator in, in the Marin Headlands in California. Um, and I myself have been a backpacker, a canyoneer, a river runner um, for a really long time. So the fact that I can combine all of these things, um, passion for the outdoors, passion for connection, community, and, and getting folks outside who normally don't get the opportunity to do it um, with BCM is, is pretty tremendous. How were you able to spend spend that time, you know, balancing between the great outdoors? Because I can only imagine, you know, your teachers wanted you to be studying and then all of a sudden you're like, no, 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 I, I gotta go, I gotta go climb. I gotta go backpack. You know, I've, I've got a, a river, you know, a river trip. I mean, you know, sometimes yeah. when you get so enveloped in the outside, everything else sort of just dis disappears. So how are you able to balance all of that? That's a great question. Um, you prioritize. I, you know, really made a point to make that my primary focus, uh, as, a, uh, someone who had a much, a lot of free time, 
younger, before I had a family. Um, I also, when I was teaching high school, unfortunately, teachers don't get paid very much, um, and nonprofit employees don't either, especially early in their career. So when it came time to take a vacation, I wasn't going to drop a lot of money on a resort anywhere because I didn't have that money. So um, it was a really affordable choice to do backpacking trips um, as my vacation. Um, and that's what I did when I was teaching and, and earlier in my career. And I just got so much out of it that um, I really wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, you know, I really I come back with a clean soul um, and, and feeling good, physically good, mentally good, emotionally good every time I come back from a trip. And, and that's what a vacation is all about. Well, prioritization is, is huge. And, you know, one of the things that I always think about is maybe I can just take a vacation every day. I'd love to live that life, but I, I don't think I can necessarily do that. But I'd imagine you've been some amazing places. Do you have some favorite, you know, destinations uh, that that you've kind of been able to experience over your lifetime? Yeah, I do. So um, up until the age of 25, 26, I'd never been west of the Mississippi. And everyone said, oh, man, you're going to love it out west. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and finally, with a friend of mine, took a road trip out west and promptly had my mind blown. I, it was just, I couldn't believe it was part of the country that I lived in and I'd never been there. So I decided I had to move <laughs> and <laughs> moved to the Bay Area um, about two years later after I wrapped up some obligations with a, with a teaching job. Um, and some of my favorite spots are in and around the Bay Area in California, Northern California. So the local spots, like you were saying, you can actually take a, a mini vacation, a micro vacation every day by just getting outside and walking around the block at a local park. Um, I spent a lot of time in the Marin Headlands and the Redwoods, uh, Big Sur. Those are great. Um, and then the first thing I did when I moved to California was I through hiked the High Sierra and John Muir Trails. Um, and I, I really feel at home in the Sierra. So that's definitely one of my favorite spots. Um, beyond that, I have a group of friends that goes to Southern Utah Canyon country every year, and I can't get enough of the Red Rock. Um, I love it out there. So um, that's definitely a favorite spot. And um, other than that, internationally, I, my honeymoon with my wife, we went to the South Island of New Zealand and hiked a bunch of the great walks. And, and uh, oh, what was did... that like? Tell us more about that. Oh, yes, oh man. <laughs> Robin, I've, I've said this many different times. You know, New Zealand is like my favorite place. It is oh, absolutely I it. sensational. I love it. I've only I been mean, there once, but I love it. All you have to do is watch Lord of the Rings. You can be there all day long. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It, I thought it was like hyperbole, but it, it isn't. It looks exactly like that because that's where it was filmed. Um, we rented a van for three weeks and we drove around and, and just kind of hiked every day and got out to trailheads and um, the, the highlight for me was the Milford track, which is one of the great walks they have there. It's kind of like here, I don't know what rim to rim on the grand Canyon or, mm. you know, one of those really marquee hikes that you would do. How um, long is it? It's I think 35 miles or so. Oh, so um, it's good. it takes good. four days, three nights and wow. you have to book it way in advance. So we, it was kind of one of those things where, you know, it was going to go up on, on the website at noon on whatever day it was, you were hitting the button kind of like it was Ticketmaster. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was amazing. Uh, it was just everything it was cracked up to be. The weather cleared for us and we got some great views at uh, the pass. I think it's called McKinnon Pass. And um, it ended in the Milford Sound, which is this really iconic spot. Um, 
and it was it was gorgeous. So 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 somebody told me this the other day, David, and I and I, I don't remember. It's been a long time since I was in New Zealand, but they said there's actually no um, wildlife or insect there that can kill you. Whereas, like in Australia, apparent. I mean, everything kills you, but like. I'm just, do you see me, true? Robin? Do you see me with my hands? Do you see me <laughs> throwing that, the thumbs up? You didn't tell, you, do you see you that? You didn't tell me that, did you? Man, did you Robin, I that? teach you everything. What are you talking about? <laughs> you don't learn anything without me. What are you saying? That's fair. This is... That's fair. I want David to confirm this, this statistic because I just found this amazing. Apparently, Dahani told oh, wait, me, wait. so I'm validating. And, 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 I'm, and go I'm ahead and ask David this. the question. How friendly are people to those that are, are backpacking and that are that are RVing? So you can go ahead and throw that in there as well as like <laughs> extra to like the amazingness of everything having to do with New Zealand. So go ahead, David. Just confirm everything I've already told Robin. <laughs> well, I, I'll have to defer to you, Dahani. I, I think that's true. As you I don't, should, I don't David. Think, as you should. I don't think there's anything there that can kill you. I know in Australia that's the opposite of true, though. Like, everything oh my can kill you in Australia. Spiders, <laughs> You can lay down like, on a park bench and never wake up again in, in Australia. You, know, you can walk to a bar and never walk out of the I bar. Know, I don't know if this is good advertising for Australia. Australia is also an amazing place, but apparently there's more things there that can kill you. There are it definitely is, yeah. more things that are dangerous. Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I, sorry, I can go on this rant all day just because of the fact that I love, I love New Zealand. And look, Robin, is absolutely true. There's nothing poisonous. So you can go to New Zealand, lay down on the grass, and you can just like have a good time, frolic away as you wish. You could go from the top of the mountains always down to the water. I mean, David, you did that on your honeymoon. I'm sure you, no, you did no all different types of things. in the water? There's no, nothing, you're, no, you're in the wrong part no. of the world, Robin. Where do you, you know, come on. Come I'm on. just you checking. Gotta, I'm just got to get I out of the bubble of Boulder, sure David. Sorry, we go yeah. on these rants yeah. all all the yeah, time. It's okay. All right, let's let's move let's move back on to business here. Um, so, David, tell us a little bit more about BCM. Which cities are you operating in? Um, what cities do you hope to expand to? Um, mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd I'd also love to just hear about like when these uh, you know young individuals come and participate. Like, I'd love to hear their reaction, like their first sort of like, cause I, and I'll, I'll share some stories too as well, but uh, you know, so maybe let's start there. Sure. So Big City Mountaineers does operate nationally. Our headquarters is in the Metro Denver area, uh, but we have programs in Seattle, Washington, uh, Portland, Oregon, the Bay Area, uh, Denver, Minneapolis, and Boston, and then we have a legacy program that's in Miami, where we take uh, kids from Miami and, and bring them to other regions. So, um, you know, lots lots of spots around the country. Uh, we don't currently have any plans to expand, um, and that's a actually a big internal debate as to whether we go deep in the regions we're in or, or wider. Mm-hmm. Um, what we do know is that the need um, in the regions we're in is hardly exhausted. Mm-hmm. And we can definitely do more where we're at, um, which I think from a, a scalability perspective makes some sense. Um, but if you know, there's anyone listening out there that says, I really want you in Dallas or Indianapolis or Milwaukee, then drop a line and let's talk. And you never know. Um, so yeah, that's that's what we're doing. And I think a lot of the youth that are coming on our, pr- our trips um, start nervous. You know, it, this is generally speaking the first time they've ever done something like this. And they're out of their element and they, um, you know, know there's something out there worth having, an experience worth having, but it's not something that they have any kind of familiarity with. So mm. what we do is we really mm. make sure that all of the barriers to access are 
addressed. And that is kind of literal and physical barriers to access, such as, do you have the gear? Do you have the permits? Do you have the transportation, you know, the food, the, the technical knowledge and instructors um, that, that we supply for our trips really help uh, <clears throat> the, the youth feel at ease. But there's also, I think, psychological barriers. Um, a lot of our, uh, our youth don't see people that look like them represented in the outdoor industry and outdoor recreation spaces. Um, a lot of folks don't think that it's something for them, which is really a shame. Mm. And um, we make sure that they understand that nature includes everyone. Everyone is a part of nature. Um, everyone has a place on the trail. Um, everyone has a place in these spaces. And our program ensures that they you know, feel psychologically comfortable to take up space there and um, that they feel, understand that like this is their birthright as much as anyone else's. So, um, you know, how how did, how did, how do you recruit the groups in? Good question. So, um, we are not an open enrollment program. You can't just sign your kid up to do it. (laughs) Um, we get a lot of questions like that though. Uh, What we do is we partner with youth agencies and schools Mm. and after school programs in each of our regions. And that way we make sure that we're really dedicating our resources to the uh, populations and communities that we think would benefit the most from this. Uh, So um, yeah, it's all, it's all through those partnerships. And do those partnerships, do do you allow those partnerships to sort of talk to the kids in order for them to kind of have a, an ease of entrance? Cause you know, I remember growing up and then all of a sudden someone wanted to take me out to the woods and I was, you know, it, it takes me like 24 hours to figure out if like there's going to be bears, mountain lions, tigers, and <laughs> other things around me, you know, just like, you know, the mental part in your psychologist, right? You studied psychology in school, right? Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a big component, you know, being able to kind of decompress from all of the crazy sounds of the city or wherever else you live into sort of like this natural environment where, you know, it's a, it's, it's a different type of I don't, I don't know if the right word is hierarchy. I don't know if it's a, um, it's just a different environment. It is totally a different environment and it takes getting used to. And I think those of us who do it a lot take that for granted. So, um, yeah, there is an ease, ease of entry. And we also make sure that there is a staff member from the youth agency or the school that goes on the trip with them um, to make sure there's a continuity of relationship. There's someone they trust. There's someone they know. Um, and that really helps out. Yeah, for sure. So, so you became the executive director in 2021. Um, sort of maybe for the audience, tell us what your initial goals and, you know, sort of uh, why you took the position. Um, but for the program in the long run, what what would you like to see happen? Gosh, big question. So, I, I took the position because it's really like the culmination and intersection of everything I've done and everything I care about. Mm-hmm. Um, it's youth work, it's nonprofit work, it's social justice work, it's outdoor access, um, all in one thing. And I just, I'm pinching myself still. I can't believe that I have the opportunity to do this on a daily basis. So I feel very fortunate. Um, And in 2021, we were coming out, like so many organizations, we were coming out of a difficult period where um, COVID was COVID is still here. I actually had COVID last week. Um, But uh, COVID was much more present. Um, I think everyone in the country um, had a kind of reckoning with power and race relations. And, you know, what do we do about all of that? And inside a lot of organizations, there's a lot of talk about like, how do we handle and manage that? So the first uh, half a year was really kind of getting BCM to a place uh, where we could be productive about that conversation. 
um, and make sure that we had a solid plan to address anything related to COVID. And, and there's some big impact. Uh, BCM didn't run trips, made the choice to not run trips in 2020 at all. So getting back on our feet in 2021, just from a, hey, we're doing trips again perspective was, was big. Um, so, you know, that uh, took up <laughs> the bulk of the past year. Um, so now we're coming out of that. We're back up to pre-COVID levels of, of trip participation. And we're That's thinking good. about um, how we can scale. And what that means to me is really ensuring that our model is codified and, and systematized. Um, we want to know that a kid in Seattle and a kid in Boston are going to have a similar experience with BCM. And what that means, I think, practically is getting all of our program staff to collaborate on creating a single program model that's used and implemented with fidelity uh, in every single one of our regions. So that's a really big push for us right now. Um, and that just helps us smooth out all of our processes. And, and you know, while we do that, we can include more people as volunteers on the trail. Uh, we can make sure that uh, group sizes maintain their, their stability um, and that you know, we can manage um, last minute cancellations and switches. Um, we have uh, different uh, course areas that are identified and that we know where we're going um, in a much more kind of informed way. Um, and uh, it's working. You know, this summer we've been thinking a lot about how, how to make that happen and we're piloting some new stuff um, and it's working and that's really exciting. Uh, and then the last thing that I'd, I'd say now is that we're really curious, as I was talking about before, as to how BCM impacts um, a young person beyond their trip experience? You know, mm. was this just like a fun week in the woods or is there something more lasting that happens because of this? And we are looking really closely at four things right now that we're hoping uh, are, are impacted because of their time outside. Uh, one is self-esteem, two is self-efficacy, three is sense of empathy, and four is sense of social belonging. And we picked those because, A, we believe the trip experience um, will, will affect those things. Um, and we know that that's true from doing this for 33 years. Um, and B, we know that those things correlate highly with things out there in the world that have other sorts of importance. So academic success, kind of career success, things like that. Um, and we want to know that, you know, this uh, week plus that uh, a young person spends with us is uh, impactful in those ways too and can help someone kind of take a new perspective on their lives. And, and so um, this fall, we're going to be crunching some numbers and, and seeing how we did this summer. And, and uh, I'm really excited about that. David, before uh, Dahani jumps into the Web3 sort of um, questions, I'm, I'm curious, is there any part of, I mean, obviously the, the organization has been around a long time. Is there any part that's kept track of you know, I mean, you mentioned things like education, you know, um, job, like things like that, you know, and also uh, ongoing outdoor activity, right? Mm -hmm. Is there any is there any part that sort of kept track of all those people that have been in the program over time, almost like a yeah. clinical study or like, you know, re-engagement type thing? Yeah, I wish we had better historical data on that. Um, what I do know is just anecdotally, uh, we have a good handful of trip participants from the past that have come back and become instructors for us. Mm. And to me, that's like that's the cool. ultimate. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, and I guess I should talk about this. This is, um, this is not yet um, 
ready for prime time, but I will give you a sneak preview. We this fall <laughs> sneak preview are brought to you by Gaming Tales right. on Outerverse Podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've always had the question, like, what do you do with the alumni who really are into it and want to take the next step? Mm-hmm. And we haven't always had a great answer for that. Um, you know, we try to get them back on trips. We try to give them scholarships to other outdoor programs. We send them some gear so they have, you know, a backpack they can use. But this fall, we received some grant money in California, and we're going to use that to um, pilot, develop and pilot what we're internally right now calling our leaders program, which is trying to answer that question. Like, what do you do with this 18, 19 year old who said, I love this. I want to do more of this. How do I go about that? Um, and uh, I'm not going to get into specifics as to what we're thinking quite yet, but um, next year in 23, we're going to start piloting this leader's idea and figuring out how to really formalize a pipeline where we take an alumnus who's really excited about all this stuff and give them an opportunity to pursue it as a career um, mm. and you know a lifelong passion. That's very cool. What about uh, what about a forty four year old man that just wants to get free gear and just go on amazing hikes and go different places? I mean, I could be a, I could be a part of this community too. I mean, like the you know the, the things you're talking about in terms of self esteem, I think that's huge. I mean, being able to kind of identify with yourself out in the environment and be able to kind of understand sort of your place in this world and belonging, I think that's you know these are uh, these are the personal ways that we need to interact with our uh, with the outdoors. But you also mentioned talked a lot about technology, right? You know, trying mm-hmm. to figure out the best way to be as efficient as possible and connect people. I mean, and and so you have these these different forces of just like human nature and then technology that are all of a sudden kind of merging. Um, and some people trying to get people to go deeper in technology where I think, you know, uh, we, you know, at outside, we're always trying to get people to go more into more, more outside into the outerverse, if you will. So, you know, how do you see web three? It's a big topic of discussion, right? How do you see web three working to get more people involved in the outdoors? I'm still learning to be totally honest with you. Uh, web three, NFTs, crypto, this is all very new to me. Um, I, I'm not an early adopter. And I probably am a good test case because I need some convincing a lot of the time for all this new stuff. So um, I had a conversation with John Dorn at Outside, um, who is a longtime BCM supporter and I know a longtime um, Backpacker Magazine and Outside um, uh, guy. And he did convince me. He's like, this is, this is a thing that we think is really going to help people turn the corner on, on getting outside. Um, and what's really compelling to me about it is that... Um, there's in real life IRL implications for some of the pieces of technology um, that are are going up in the outerverse. Um, that it doesn't remain a digital thing. Like there is some impact, and uh, you see a change, you know, in in flesh and blood, dirt mm-hmm. and sky, um, and and that to me is like okay, I get it. It's not just a YouTube video that someone owns, right? Like there's other things that come with this. Um, and I, I thought to myself, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, part part of any new technology, right, David, is that it is, um, you know, and, and maybe one of my concerns, maybe I'll, I'll flip this back a little bit to, you know, like when I think about, you know, something like the iPhone launching, um, you know, now for most of us, it's pretty integrated into our lives. Mobile is like, mm-hmm. and, and in a way that, I don't think any of us could have expected in, you know, 2007 
when the iPhone launched, um, and certainly after the App Store launched in 2008, I think, you know, I mean, there was a period where on average people were downloading 40 apps a month. Um, now that's like less than 10 apps a year, right? So there isn't like, there isn't the same newness to it, but it's so integrated into our lives. And I think with any new technology, it's this question of like, well, how is this gonna be leveraged in certain industries, certain categories? Um, and, and, you know, our big concern at Outside was like looking at the stats, you know, the average um, person in the U.S. is spending nine to 11 hours a day on a screen, um, you know, whether that's work, whether that's school, whether that's playtime, um, you know, kids. And, and I'm curious what research y you all have as well. But at least the research that we found is like, you know, the, the clinical recommendation for outdoor time is a minimum 130 minutes a week. And what we're seeing is that less, kids are getting less than half of that in the U.S. right now a week. And a lot of this to me is this pull between, you know, screen time and, and outdoor time and, you know, that sort of gravitational pull or the, what I would call the dopamine response to screen time is so strong that it's pulling kids indoors. Um, and when I think about Web3, there's a lot of like goodness to it. In other words, decentralization, creators owning a bigger piece of the pie, more ownership mm. for the user. All of those things are sort of core tenants of Web3. But when you look at it, still so much of the resource is going into what I would call the metaverse, which is really investment into VR, which I would argue um, might allow someone to experience the outdoors in their living room but to me, that's exactly what I don't want to see happen. I mean, I'm not saying for the first time, like it's great if somebody could, you know, like again, you're thinking about it, like for um, surgeons using a VR to uh, reenact surgeries. That's a great use case from an education standpoint before they go in and do the actual surgery. But in my view, someone experiencing the outdoors, it could be great that they get to do that once on VR, but that is not the long-term goal. I mean, that's going to put us in a bad spot. So I'm curious... How, you know, when, when obviously these experiences you're giving young people and, and access, how do you think about this sort of pull from the technology world that really has become so prevalent over the last 15 years? Well, to be totally honest, we strip down technology on our trips um, mm. and we do that really intentionally. Um, no one has their phone, even if they say they want to take pictures. We, we have cameras, <laughs> digital cameras, but, uh, you know, like... You got to get those just, old school throwaway cameras and you just take them to the local the, CVS yeah. or <laughs> Dwayne Reed. Well, they yeah. still want high quality ones because they want to be able to take the pictures back. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, so we do that because we, we do think it's important to um, give people a different perspective on, you know, how to be in the world. And we don't want um, folks looking down at a, you know, six-inch screen when there's a scenic vista in front of them. So I couldn't agree more with, with your sentiments about that. Um, I think our job is to kind of light the flame, um, to be the spark, and hopefully, as folks go back into their lives and they have their phones, and you know, I have my phone right next to me, I'm sure you do too, we can kind of carry that consciousness and that spark with us so that we can put our phone in our pocket and put it on airplane mode when we're walking down the street or going on a hike. Um, and I think that's the role that a BCM experience can play in um, encouraging people to 
disengage from their screens for a little bit. I mean, it's inevitable. And one of the greatest ironies for me is, you know, I, I took this job, I thought I'd be outside much more than I am. And mm. it's just me and Excel a lot of the days. <laughs> so, I think, you, you, I think you should just, you should petition to have your, your, uh, your office just outside. I mean, you could do that, yeah. you know, just sort of reconfigure technology in order to, you know, its own interaction with the environment. So like when it rains, it doesn't like burn out or something like that. But there's, there's ways to, <laughs> there's ways to essentially do that. Um, you know, I, I, I love how Robin was, was thinking about VR headsets. I mean, my son, he's on VR headset all the time. And then he's talking, you know, sometimes to his tutor all, all the time on, on zoom. And then all of a sudden he's on his watch communicating with his friends. And then he's on his computer uh, playing video games with them and then you know in the classroom he's doing the same type of thing so you know i i also you know look at the look at the phone and you know one of the things i do on, on a sunday is i put the phone away and i go to my little i have a little flip phone the old school i think david i don't know yeah. if you know about the flip phone but it was one of those oh, things yeah. that robin and i grew up with actually robin had one of the original ones he carried around his phone in a bag um i had the little <laughs> flip phone <laughs> But, you know, these are the things that we're, we're going to soon have to find a way to kind of get, a, get away from. But, you know, just kind of, you know, there's um, one of the things we asked you before the, the interview was talking about your Web3 predictions, you know, kind of going back um, and, yeah. and the future. And you talked about Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash. You know, a lot of people haven't read that book. And for, for those that have read the book, give them a little bit of a background. But, you know, just elaborate a little bit on on your thoughts relating to Web3 and Snow Crash. Sure. Um, I, I don't know if I could summarize this book in 30 seconds, but it's complicated. It's a vision. Give it a minute. Give it a, <laughs> yeah. take a Give it a, a minute. Even a minute. I, really, I want to hear this. It's a, it's a vision of the near future that I wouldn't say is totally utopian. Um, and in it, uh, Stevenson describes something called the metaverse. And this was a term I'm, I'm sure he coined in the 1990s. Um, I hadn't heard it before, uh, where people have avatars and they go, they log into an internet and they walk around and they go into cafes. And when you touch someone with your avatar, it's like a data download. Um, and, you know, there's many, many other things that are woven into and out of this this vision. Um, but, you know, for now, I think that is um, a good predictor. And, and you know, I, that's where I see the metaverse being pushed. And I don't know if, you know, Silicon Valley has all read this book and just has this as their mental model or not, but it's kind of uncanny how right he's been so far with other stuff. Um, and, you know, can we get to a place where we are putting on our VR headsets and, and sitting next to each other virtually um, where we have, you know, in interactions the way we would in a coffee shop. It seems like it's going that direction. Um, I think that's one aspect of kind of the new frontier of the web that uh, is getting a lot of press and flash and dazzle. But, you know, there's, there's other things too that mm. um, would, and I'm by no means an expert at this, but, but would help people um, keep in touch with, I'd say their humanity. Um, and my hope, and I know outside's intention, is to use this tool to get people outdoors into nature. And to me, there's no better way to engage with your humanity than being outside, being in nature, and being with people, flesh and blood, dirt and sky. Um, so, you know, there's there's other angles and aspects to it that I'm only just starting to learn about that that have a lot of potential. 
When when the kids show up at these outdoor experiences, I'm I'm curious sort of what their reaction is. And to your point, probably a lot of them, um, depending on the age groups, probably do have access to technology. Mm-hmm. What is their what is their like initial like the first couple of days like where they're totally disconnected? Like kind of share with our audience like what that sort of feels like um, and what you see in them. And I really want to know how many times they ask for their phone. <laughs> yeah. considering yeah, the average person looks at their phone 262 times a day wow that's a lot that's a lot <laughs> well we have a, a great way to address that and that is that's something we've been working on so um for anyone uh it's a tough ask to go from never having camped to doing a week-long backpa- backpacking trip yeah that was not my first experience in the outdoors that's for sure Um, And so what we've started to do this year, and we piloted this last year, is we start to gradually ramp them up to the trip. Mm. And we start them off with an info session uh, where we tell them what the deal is. We answer all their questions. And yeah, there's that question, like, can I bring my phone? And we say, (laughs) I'm sorry. No. So like right away, they know that's not part of the deal. And How many people people drop as soon as you say that? uh, I don't know the... I don't know the statistics, but there's a good chunk of folks who say, you know, mm, not for me. Wow. Um, Interesting. Wow. And what that does ensure is that people who, even if they're uncomfortable with the idea of not having their phone next to them, um, they're willing to try it. Uh, and and those are the folks who end up going on the trip. So, you know, I think it'd be valuable for everyone to do this. Um, I love this idea that, you know, on a Sunday or something, you put your phone away and... Um, Maybe we should just institutionalize that. <laughs> That's the day that Robin always calls me. Did my 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 <laughs> wife my wife bought this uh, thing where it's 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 you look on Amazon it's uh it's a locking thing and it has a timer on it and what do you mean you a locking unlock. thing? What are you talking no, you, about? You can't. It has, you can't put your phone in a safe and just like have no, a timer. Yeah, no, seriously, that's torturous. It's right there on the counter. No, no, no. It's See, right there on the that's, counter. She that's makes me torturous. put it in there for thirty minutes when I get home. Right when I get home. Yeah, and you can't unlock it. You, there's no way to get it open. Once that, the that's, timer that's, starts, that's, there's no way to get it open. That's bad. That's modern day torture. I, I, I disagree. Ridiculous. I think these. I no, think just, we're. Gonna, I think we if she need just would these types of tactics. I'd, I'd prefer that she would just take your phone and put it in her pocket and walk away. And, you know, do something <laughs> like that. We shouldn't have to put it into like a contraption. I'm not I already feel wife, like we're already did not do this. It was an agreement that we had together. Agreement. Oh, you to, wrote like, this in a contract now. Oh my no, gosh. I'm saying that we agreed that this was a better way for like to disconnect right when I got home. Robin, next step, she's so, going to put it into the grill and she's going to turn it on. No, and it's no, no. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that might be okay with me, actually. <laughs> I, I, it might be okay. Um, so it, it, that, that reaction is interesting, David, because I think that there's this. Um, so when I think about Web3, when I think about what's happening from a technology perspective, there's so many things in our lives that have like these embedded incentives. So like, I, I, again, sort of started in gaming, like gaming's really, really good at this. I mean, Stanford professors in behavioral science have been training these gamers for years and years and years to put in small things that are going to incentivize, you know, people to play the games more in a whole bunch of ways, right? And then you think about even something like, you know, your credit card has points and rewards and, you know, there are now uh, corporate wellness programs to give you rewards for, you know, working out and things of that nature. So like these these incentives are built in everything. And so Part of it is that I believe that we have to use the technology to do similar things to mm. incentivize people to, to want to get into the outdoors. And that, and that is really, in some ways, the premise for how we're thinking about building all of our technology, whether it's you know the stuff on Web 3 or Web 2, like how do we create these incentives? 
I'm curious how, like, how do you think that will resonate with this next generation? And do we have to do it in a way that they almost don't even know that it's there? You, you can take you can take a moment on that. That that was a lot. That was like focusing. You know, he basically Robin asked you to be Neil Stevenson. You know, twenty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's that's a tall order. I it, that's that's something that's I'm not an expert in. Um, I would say you know, like I said, BCM's role is to provide the phone free experience. Um, but what I've seen with uh, young people who are the same age as, as the, the trip participants that we have is Pokemon Go. Mm. Um, and that got a lot of people outside <laughs> for, a you know, lot. for better or worse. A it's, um, still a, it's still a billion dollar revenue business. People out basically finding stuff in parks and all kinds of places. I mean, it's a very big business. Yeah. And that speaks to the Easter eggs you were talking about, Robin. It speaks to the way that people get reinforced um, through through technology in order to kind of do things. It was mind-blowing to me when it first hit. I was walking around and, and see these groups of people outside. <laughs> Almost getting run over by cars wandering yeah. out in the streets. And David, it's okay <laughs> to admit that you were part of that crowd. It's okay. You know, I know you saw the crowd, but it was the fact that you were in the crowd. It's okay. You just admit it. We are very open here on the Outerverse, okay? So, you know, you don't have to yeah. shy away from saying that you're part of Pokemon Go community. I would own it if I did it. I really would. Um, I, I never got to that point. I had a colleague do it, and it was so funny. We were on a work trip, and um, someone drove up in a car, pointed at her, laughed at her, shook their phone at her, and then drove away because something had just happened in Pokemon. <laughs> and the rest of us were just dumbfounded. We didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Um, but it, you know, it, it gets a lot of people outside. So, you know, I, before that, um, you know, minus a, a couple layers of technology, there was geocaching and letterboxing and stuff like that. So there's, there's a lot of potential there and, you know, people will bring their phones on hikes, um, will bring their phones on backcountry hikes, especially with the advent of GPS. And maybe there's some overlay to a, a GPS, um, platform that could have some sort of geocache, element to mm. it that gives you a mission as you're hiking. I don't know. But um, well, there's even these apps that now like identify with AR, the type of tree it is, the type of flower it is, the type of birds, um, you know, so you kind of feel like all of that stuff could be integrated with, you know, rewards and sort of gamification in a way that gets pe more people engaged when they're actually in the outdoors. But that is where that technology merges together. So I'm curious, like, do you think that's good or do you think that is potentially, you know, sort of counter, you know, counter what say you're trying to do or what you think we should do in the outdoors? And David, mm -hmm. let me just add a little bit to that. When, when you think about the young people that are going outside alongside with you and they don't have their phone and they can't interact with those types of tools, you know, does it cause a, you know, does it cause a missed opportunity whereby there's only so many people that are walking alongside with them that are teaching them that you could also have a tool where it also teaches them as well. So how do you kind of mm -hmm. reconcile with that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I think that it is good uh, because phones aren't going away. Technology is here to stay. We can't pretend like they're, they're not. Um, and Outside of these very carefully curated experiences, people will have their phones on hikes, and I am one of those people. Uh, so having um, 
the ability to incentivize, motivate, get people excited about something um, like going on a hike is a good thing. Hard stop. Um, you know, is it is it a detractor to not have these on a BCM experience or any experience? Um, I would say no. Uh, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One is because we have these old school things called field guide books, mm. um, where you can look at a book and identify the plant or the animal. Wait, wait, what's um, a book? I know it's this thing with paper pages turn. It's, it's, you do it's realize, you, you do realize there's a whole, like there's a whole world of people that have never written anything in their entire life. Yeah. Hardly ever picked that's, up a pen or great. a pencil, that's just completely great. interacted, utilizing, utilizing voice or, or some type of like tactile, interaction with a with a device it's it's wild uh yeah tahani we're about the same age so we grew up as the internet grew up and you know we kind of span the difference between um these two worlds and to see it from both sides is you know we were the last generation that didn't have cell phones in high school Mm -hmm. Um, i'm glad you said that you and i are the same age because robin's definitely not so that's good I just keep uh, beating turn, up Robin turn, turn the whole 50 time. This month, man, turn 50. <laughs> Robin, are we doing? A, you know, we should do a. We have. We should have a out, outside party. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. So uh, we'll, keep going, we'll, David. We'll, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. So you know, uh, yeah, we bring field guides. There's like star charts we bring, and the instructors that we hire and we train also have some knowledge of the local environment, and they're able to kind of fill in some of those gaps. So that's one thing, um, and then two is. Uh, Sometimes it's okay to not know, right? We live in a world I love where we have the sum total of human knowledge in our pockets at all times. And uh, if you don't know a question, you you just look it up and you know in 10 seconds. And to not know, to have a, a question, to have a sense of wonder, and this is back to my science teacher wow. roots here, like that is a really powerful thing. Um, yeah. And the questions will endure longer than the answers many times. Wow. So... Um, I like the idea that sometimes you just don't have the answer and you have to wonder or you have to ask and you have to just like pontificate for a minute mm. and it gives you a sense of, of awe. Um, and that's, that's something that we, we've lost touch with, I think. You're, you're, you're actually referencing something that I, that I guess I've thought about, but I haven't really kind of been able to define. This notion of immediate grat- gratification you know, gives, doesn't give you an opportunity to kind of explore all of the different opportunities that exist in between right and to interact Mm -hmm. with multiple people in order to kind of create that human connection with those that you may never have met before you know a simple place like where where is the coffee shop around the corner you know you ask your phone and it immediately takes you there instead of asking multiple people along the way where the where the where the coffee shop is um and so that they can point you in those directions and then the you know the the, the unique place that you run into because of the fact that you never make it to the coffee shop because no one knows where they're going anyways, right? But now all of a sudden you happen <laughs> upon a u- unique spot, right? So that immediate gratification prevents you from learning all these things in between. And that notion of wonder, David, I think that's beautifully put. So I, I appreciate that. And so I ask you, you know, where are the places in the outdoors you see the most, you know, opportunities for more people outside? Yeah, I like the idea that it's a local thing that you don't have to get on a plane or drive six hours Mm. to experience the outdoors. Um, And, you know, in the places that BCM operates, local is pretty 
dramatic, right? If you leave Seattle by an hour, if you leave the Bay Area by an hour, you're in a world-class environment. Denver, the same yeah. thing. Um, but there's nature everywhere. There's local parks, there's um, state parks nearby, and uh, this should be like a daily practice. <laughs> this shouldn't be something like I have to save my PTO up to do. Um, but I can go on the weekend or I can go after work or after school or, you know, something like that. So I think thinking locally is really, really important. Um, and this isn't something that's out there and far away and out of reach. It's something you really have access to whenever. Um, and sometimes it's as simple as like looking at the grass growing up between seams and the concrete. Um, yeah, no, exactly because that's right. nature too. And, yeah. you know, that's, that's profound. Um, and there's Tupac read a whole bunch about the rows that grew in concrete. So, um, did you just drop the Tupac reference? I did. Yeah. Love that. You know how many places <laughs> we've gone in this conversation. This is amazing. Yeah, this is... We, we <laughs> Kurt, you know, we, we, you know, Robin, we need to make sure we highlight all of that, but we need to throw a Tupac bed track on this specific, um, uh, you know, this specific well, interview. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we can get in touch with his estate. So, uh, David, I, obviously you're on a journey with us. Um, you, mm -hmm. you referenced the conversation you originally had with John. We're, you know, I would argue as, as a company, um, you know, I, I, my belief is that good companies only focus on their core and the, the energy and they never really explore moonshots. They never really look to do bigger things. And so I think um, one of my goals at Outside, and I think, you know, a lot of discussions I've had with the board and you know, certainly our um, other investors is that we want to take moonshots and, and Web3 is mm. is very much that. It's 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 one of the things that we think could transform the business over time, but it's not it's not an it's not an immediate, right? It's not all gonna happen um, overnight. And you're tasked with obviously, you know, fundraising for, you know, your organization, how you bring in dollars, how how the group um, thinks about that. Um when when you were originally talking to John and, and obviously we're you know we, we we're, for the projects that Outside is doing we're giving twenty percent back to nonprofit organizations that we designate for each different one. Um, that's going to I mean my belief is it will take time to materialize as we launch more and more projects in the space. But how do you think about this relative to other things that you're doing and kind of like how you even think about other new opportunities to fundraise for uh, BCM? Mm -hmm. Um. Well, to be honest, it never really crossed my mind until I talked with John and he said, come in, I have this thing I want to run by you. And um, I said, okay, sure. And <laughs> heard it out and um, thought that uh, A, there's there's really no harm in trying. Um, mm. And I think this is one of the things where the more people that jump, the better it gets, um, which is really exciting. Um, I'm myself only beginning to understand cryptocurrency and what that means. And it still kind of is a mind blowing thing that people can just invent a currency and have that <laughs> have value. But I guess yeah. that's what happened with the dollar and the yen and the ruble and everything else. So yeah. um, this is just the newest version of that. Um, but that it isn't government run um, and it's people run and mm. it's done kind of by consensus um, is really cool. And um, I like the, the democratic feel of that. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I want to jump with this um, organizationally um, to support uh, everything that that represents. And we've, we've already seen like it started. Um, I, in my crypto wallet, I see like a little 
beginning of a trickle of, of funding coming in, which is really exciting. Um, and I also think that there's like the resale market represents a huge opportunity. And, you know, I am the first NFT I ever, I guess, acquired was at Outdoor Retailer this past year. Um, I got the Bedrock um, NFT. And so I'm not familiar with the trading aspect of it, um, but I think of it like baseball cards um, where, you know, yeah, it's just a piece of cardboard, but it has the value that people ascribe to it and mm. it can be sold and resold. And every time there is a resale, there's an opportunity for a kickback. Um, that's appealing to me um, as, a, as a fundraiser. So there's a lot of pluses. Um, that and, ongoing royalty certainly is something that mm -hmm. I think people don't truly understand yet because of how simpl the simplicity of managing. I mean, in baseball cards, as an example, or other collectibles, mm. actually tracking royalties is very difficult. I think that's one of the appeals of Web3 and smart contracts is that it's very, very transparent when it happens, how it happens. Um, with the point you're making, if, you're, if your direct wallet is attached, that you will immediately get the benefit of that rather than having to go through a contract or follow up or try to figure out who's managing um, those royalties. And I think that's one of the you know, really interesting things about, about Web3 and the secondary markets in the future. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So like, I, I, the only challenge I'm, I'm running into is just wrapping my head around what it means um, for you know, my finance committee on the board to say, okay, we have a crypto account. What do we do with that? What is the policy around converting to dollars and, you know, all of that. But that is just a conversation that we're having um, yeah. and really not an obstacle at all. So we're all learning um, and it's exciting. Well, and, you know, we have lots ahead of us in terms of regulation and other things that are probably will go through evolutions. But um, one, you know, I just, you know, I, I know Dahania has another question, but um, you know, I, I'd say from outside's perspective, we appreciate the partners who are willing to go along in this journey with us because it is a potential moonshot for outside and what I think could be transformative for getting people into outdoor culture. Yeah. Well, I was, uh, I was listening to you all talk and just reminds me of an interview I heard with Mark Andreessen just talking about, um, you know, the, the evolution of Web3, the notion of cryptocurrency and blockchain and so much technology and how there will be, you know, incredible pushback and there will be sort of the need for regulation. But ultimately, as Robin pointed out, <clears throat> as we've talked <laughs> jokingly throughout the entire discussion, you know, the the iPhone, there was a lot of pushback around the iPhone. Then all of a sudden the iPhone became anything, you know, how many times have you ever walked out of the house without your iPhone just attached to your hand? And if for some reason you get two steps outside of your house, you start patting down your pockets and you're checking your, you know, your shirt, your jacket, you know, it, it, it's a part of who you are. And I, and, and, uh, I, I forgot there's a gentleman that I also watched and he, he was uh, on, on Instagram or he was giving some sort of reel and he was talking about if you talk to someone and you're holding your phone, you know, they, they think about you differently than if you kind of put your phone away. So this interaction between you and your phone and the interaction between people and how they think about technology, it's going to take time to, to evolve. And, you know, we, we appreciate David, you being a, a good partner, but, you know, going and, and all the great things that we're going to do together. Uh, but going back to, you know, BCM, you know, are there, you know, I love your, I love your organization. Um, and with, with any, with any organization there, there comes challenges. Um, you know, not, you know, we're, we're talking about technology, technological challenges, but there's also people challenges. There's also community challenges. There's governmental challenges within, uh, nonprofits and 
you know, organizations alike. So, you know, are there challenges for you um, or what are the challenges that really confront BCM's mission to get more people from underserved areas outside? Oh, many. <laughs> I would say the thing that's uh, related to what we were just talking about, it's a financial challenge. Um, this is not a cheap, inexpensive endeavor. Mm. Um, it's labor intensive. It's human resources intensive. And um, we want to do it right. You know, we don't just take groups and drop them off at a trailhead and say, have a great time. You know, mm. we really are, are involved. And um, because of that, there's, there's a lot of expenses. Uh, so right now is um, a moment where uh, a lot of folks, especially who have uh, money invested in traditional markets, are having a harder time donating uh, because mm. the market is really topsy-turvy. So... Um, that is right now a big challenge for us uh, to make sure that we can continue to fund our programs um, to the level that that we want to. And money can be turned into people. Money can be turned into um, anything you need it to be turned into um, organizationally to make sure it all runs. Um, and we we are lean. You know, this national organization is uh, fully staffed nine people wow. full time. Um, and a and lot of people many, don't understand many, how that. How many outdoor trips do you guys do a year? Yeah, we're going to be doing this year between 30 and 35 week-long backpacking trips. Wow. Um, equal numbers of day hikes and um, overnights as well. So, yeah. That's, that's a lot for a staff of nine, for sure. It is. So, you know, having more money means we can hire more people. Um, and. Yep. Share, share the load and, and make sure that we can really give the attention that is necessary to make excellent, extraordinary experiences happen. So before we wrap up, um, well, a couple things I'll ask you in the wrap up, but before we wrap mm -hmm. up, I know you love to get outdoors. So I'm going to ask you this question. Mm -hmm. If you could go on a hike, all day hike with a famous person, who <laughs> would it be? Living? No, they don't no. have to be living. They, they can come back. You're just, you're just you're bringing back. them back. Yeah, you're bringing them back. Or they could be here, or they yeah. could be in the future too, David. Um, my mind went to Thoreau. Oh. Um, Henry David Thoreau, who isn't living, um, but who wrote Walden. And um, <laughs> if you can get through it, it's a kind of a dense read. <laughs> it's um, a big I one. think, yeah, it has a lot to say about... Um, just his experience in nature. And um, he also, I think, wasn't as, a, as, as a much of a hermit as people thought. You know, he had lunch mm. with his mom every other day in town and he went into Boston and stuff like that. So I would be really curious to kind of see firsthand who this dude was and how it resulted in his decision to do the thing that caused him to write this book um, that has influenced me and, and a lot of other people. So that's awesome. Um, that that uh, came to mind initially, but I need to stew on that. There's there's you, many more answers. You, I could. <laughs> well, we'll have you back on, and we'll we'll ask you again. <laughs> okay. um, so um, first of all, uh, David, thank you so much for for spending the hour with us. Um, thank you, David. Can you tell our listeners um, where, if they wanted to, just donate directly outside of this, and then I'll talk about wrapping up with outside.io, but what, where they would go? Absolutely. So, um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a really cool conversation. Um, and 
I, I, I hope I, I wasn't positioned as someone who had the answers because I really don't, <laughs> but I like picking at these ideas a whole lot. So thank you for the opportunity. Um, BigCityMountaineers.org is our website, and there you can find out more about our programs. Uh, there's a donate button, and you can make a donation there. We also have a program called Adventure for Someone, which means um, you can customize any outdoor experience that you want to have into um, a fundraiser for BCM. So it, it adds a layer of meaning and purpose to your hike, to your mm. yoga class, to your backpacking trip, to your next bike ride. And um, that's a great way to support uh, BCM as well. So thanks for considering. And of course, um, as Robin's about to share, um, anything that comes in from the Outerverse Passport um, will also benefit BCM. Yeah, and people can find out more, uh, not only about uh, BCM, but our other uh, partners, um, brands, uh, creators, and uh, nonprofit organizations at outside.io. Um, as we continue on this journey of uh, building out our version of um, the metaverse, where we call ourselves the anti-metaverse in the outerverse. So, uh, David, again, thank you so much for spending time with us. Dahani, always thank great you, to see you. My pleasure. Thank you both. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. The Outerverse Podcast is an outside interactive production with hosts Robin Thurston and Dahani Jones. The producer and sound engineer is Kirk Warner, scheduling by Adrian Paulson. To learn more about all we are doing in the Outerverse and to sign up for the Outerverse Passport, head to outside.io. Have a great week and get outside.